Let's pray. God, you are so good, and we, we love you so much. We love you in response to this incredible love that you have given to us before we ever would have even thought to seek you out or to call out to you. Uh, you loved us, and you loved us in Christ Jesus, who was crucified, whose blood was shed, whose body was given, that we might be redeemed, and we praise you for that. We thank you for the way that the Old Testament prophets searched and inquired to understand these things. And we thank you that they gave us adumbrations, pictures of a Savior who would come and suffer. And we thank you that these are beautiful things into which angels long to look. And I pray that as we consider these truths this morning that we would be drawn into worship and gratitude and adoration for who you are and for everything that you've done. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would minister here this morning. You would minister through your word and you would encourage and edify the saints in Christ's name. Amen. So if you're not already in 1 Peter chapter 1, like I'm not in 1 Peter chapter 1, then I encourage you to turn there. Um, last week, my family and me were not here to gather with you on uh, Sunday morning. We went on a little trip down to southern Arizona. And while we were there, we took our kids on a tour of Karchner Caverns. Um, if you've never been down there, it's pretty cool. Um, there are these massive caves down there. And they were actually hidden from people until the 1970s. They weren't discovered until the 1970s. Thousands of years, these caverns were unexplored. No one had ever, ever entered into them so far as we know. And they've now been turned into this state park. You can go there and you can tour through the different caverns. There's actually a couple different ones. We uh, got to go through one of them. And the, the unique beauty and wonder of this underground world that we got to walk through is really difficult to describe. I mean, I can use words like stalactite and stalagmite, but until you've seen it for yourself, you can't really comprehend it. And I found myself thinking while we were walking through there, you know, down in this cavern, we are getting to see deep mysteries of creation that very few people have ever had the opportunity, the, the pleasure of seeing. Wonderful works of art crafted by God out of water and rock. And of course, because I'm just this kind of guy, I found myself deeply tempted to walk off the path that they tell you again and again and again, don't walk off the path. Because I just wanted to go and explore all the various twists and turns that you could just, just see, but you weren't allowed to go and plumb the depths of them. There were parts of the cave that I just longed to look at more deeply and explore more, more fully and, and see what other beauty might be hidden back there. And we're not going to crawl into a cavern together as a church this morning. Don't worry, I'm not going to take you that direction. But we are actually going to go on a similar kind of trip, believe it or not not into the deep mysteries of creation that's hidden beneath the surface of the earth, but we are going to delve down into some of the deep mysteries of salvation. Today we're going to explore the beauty of the gospel, wonderful things into which we will see angels long to look, this captivating beauty of God's love, 
which is actually so deep that nobody has ever managed to plumb the depths and explore all the nooks and crannies of it because it has a limitless bottom. So read with me in 1 Peter chapter 1, just verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what we've been looking at here in the beginning of Peter's letter is a complete picture of God's salvation plan laid out for us. And it's, it's really beautiful. I mean, you're going to have to stretch back in your memory over a couple of weeks to get all the way back to the first couple of verses. But God who began to plan his work of salvation beginning long ago, remember back to 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1 that told us about God's foreknowledge. Before the foundations of the earth, before that cavern down near Tucson was ever formed, God put together a plan for our salvation. And God in his wonderful wisdom and his sovereign power has faithfully carried that plan out through all of human history. Back in the Old Testament, we began to see it unfold. The prophets foretold how it would play out. And God is even now methodically working this plan out as we look forward to the subsequent glories that are still ours to behold in the future that await us on the day when Christ will fully and finally be revealed to us. And everything is going perfectly according to plan. I know you may not think that that's true based on things that are going on in your life or around the world, but it's all going perfectly according to plan. So we begin our text here in verse 10 with an idea fragment. Peter says, concerning this salvation... When he speaks about this salvation, what salvation is he referring to? I think we find some clues in what Peter has written. There's two clues that I want to point out to you. I think there's actually a few more than that, but I I don't have time to get into all of them. The first clue is actually found back in verses 5 through 9, which I know we didn't read, uh, but you can look there. First in verse 5, we are guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. Then again in verse 7, the tested genuineness of your faith. And then again in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That same salvation that Peter references in verse 10. So the first clue about Peter's salvation, which he's discussing, is that it is concerning our faith. It's connected to faith. The second clue is actually there in verse 10, where Peter says that this salvation has to do with the grace that was to be yours. So these two words, grace and faith, they unlock for us the wonder of our salvation, grace and faith. Now this might be obvious to you that salvation is by grace through faith. Certainly if you hang around our church, uh, we talk about these ideas pretty much all the time. But when we consider the wider story of 
the scriptures, going all the way back to Genesis, all the way back to the Old Testament, we really begin to see how incredible this idea of salvation by grace through faith is. If you were unfamiliar with the Bible and you just picked it up and uh, you made the choice that many people do when they're unfamiliar with the Bible and you were to begin in Genesis chapter 1 and you were to just start reading your Bible and you were to make it through Genesis to Exodus and you were to make it into Leviticus and if at that point you didn't quit like most people do and you made it to Numbers and then Deuteronomy... Do you know what you would naturally think about salvation? You would think exactly the same thing the Jews thought. You would assume that the only way to be right with God is to keep his commands. You would think the only way to stand before this God and receive blessing from him and be accepted into his presence would be to do everything that he commands you to do in his law, to do good works. You would think that God's favor and his blessing was only for those who could do everything that pleases him. You would trip over what Romans chapter 9 calls the stumbling stone. That righteousness before God comes to those who do good works. And friends, this is still what most people believe today. Maybe some of you in this room who call yourself a Christian even still believe this. I mean, if you ask a lot of people, hey, do you think that you're going to heaven? Most people say yes. And then if you ask the follow-up question, why do you think you're going to go to heaven? Most people will say, I'm a good person. And so I, I'm worthy of it. I deserve it. Most people believe that by doing good things, they can live up to some kind of standard And people can achieve for themselves some kind of self-righteousness that it makes them acceptable to God. I wasn't going to put this in my notes, but now that I'm standing here, I think it's interesting. I came across this really bizarre article this week about an Indian guy who is a Hindu and to appease his god, Vishnu, has kept his arm raised for 40 years. And his arm is withered and emaciated and totally destroyed. Why is he doing it? Because he thinks that for some reason, by doing this act of obedience, his God will accept him. This is what most people believe. This is what most of the Jews believed. If they kept the Ten Commandments and they kept the law, then God would be pleased and he would accept them on the basis of their good deeds. They would be acceptable because of what they do. And honestly, don't you sometimes believe that? I mean, think about the way that you ponder your relationship with God. Don't you sometimes get tripped up by this stumbling stone? Don't you sometimes think, God's love for me must be based on what I do. Everything else that I do in life is based on my performance. Don't you sometimes feel discouraged? You think thoughts like, I've been doing a lot of bad things lately. God must not love me very much right now. Or don't you sometimes get arrogant and cocky and think, man, I'm, I'm really like doing well at this and God must really love me a lot right now. I mean, I see these people over here. I'm definitely doing better than them. So I didn't mean to point at you. Sorry. <laughs> I confess that I often fall over the stumbling stone. I get tripped up in thinking about my relationship with God being based 
first and foremost on my performance, as if God's love for me is dependent on how I do as a father or a husband or how I do as a pastor or a preacher. But look back at verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. You can see what Peter says there. He says that we are waiting to obtain the outcome of our works, the salvation of our souls. Is that what your version says? No, it says we are waiting to obtain the outcome of our faith. And then again, he points in verse 10 to grace that is to be ours. Grace, which is God's acceptance of us, even though we do not deserve to be accepted by him. Oh, how I long for every one of you connected to my church to be free from the bondage of your performance-based theology. Oh, how I long for our church to live in the liberty of God's grace the joyful liberty of his radical love for those whose identity is in Christ who is the propitiation for their sins. I'm going to say something right now that sounds almost blasphemous, but I assure you it is true and biblical nonetheless. God's love for you is not in any way dependent upon what you do. God's love for you is not in any way dependent upon what you do. Do you actually believe that? It sounds suspicious, doesn't it? Paul tells us in Romans 8.39 that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 tells us in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And so the salvation that you have, the love of God that covers you, that is a gift that you have been given. You are not worthy of it. Praise God for that. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You could never deserve it. You will not ever be worthy of it. There will never be a point where you can stand before God and say, God, thank you for your love. I know that I deserve it deeply. Never. It's a generous gift of inexpressible kindness given to you by God at the moment that you recognize your own misery and you turn to him in faith and repentance. He gave it freely. God poured out upon you the gracious gift of his love as soon as you recognized your need for him. And this is the salvation that Peter is talking about. This is the salvation which he says that the prophets inquired about. Remember in the Old Testament, it wasn't, it wasn't obvious. You, you wouldn't think salvation would look like this. It's salvation graciously given not because of works, but because of your faith in the work of Jesus Christ. And so his love is not dependent upon your works, but your works are dependent upon his love. You work the works that you do as the outpouring of the love that you've been given. Now, there are hints of this wonderful truth in the Old Testament It's not obvious, but it's there. It's littered all throughout the Old Testament. That's why Peter tells us in verse 10 about these prophets who prophesied about what was to come. 
and they delved deep into the Word of God that God had given to them to understand at what time and in what manner would this mystery be revealed, that God's love would be poured out by grace and not by works. And again, there's hints all over the Old Testament. I I don't have time to even touch on a fraction of them, but let's mention a few of the prophets. Moses. Moses testified about a prophet that would follow after him, that would be raised up like him, that would lead God's people out of spiritual slavery. Or David, who proclaimed in the Psalms, blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his transgressions, whose sins are covered. Or Malachi, who declared that one day the Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in its wings. Again, just to name a short few. Peter says here in verse 11 that these prophets, they searched and they inquired, looking for information regarding this person in this time. And what did their search reveal? Well, it revealed not the answer that they would have expected or even maybe the answer they wanted. I would say that's for sure. Peter tells us in verse 11 some of what they discovered. They discovered that this salvation or this Savior who would bring salvation would suffer. They searched and they found suffering. The Messiah, the Christ, this great hero of heroes would be connected to suffering. And I think probably the clearest place where the prophets point to the suffering of the Messiah is there in Isaiah 53. You heard it. Turn there with me again in your Bible because I want to highlight a couple things. I think this is a passage of Scripture or a chapter of your Bible that every Christian should be familiar with. It usually tends to come up a lot around Easter. Today, we refer to this chapter as the suffering servant. Look at verses 10 through 12. The prophet Isaiah prophesies by the Holy Spirit and says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's Jesus. God has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's a prophecy about grace found in the Old Testament. Look at verse 11. We're told about a righteous one, God's servant, and he will bear the iniquities or the sins of all God's people. And by bearing their iniquities, he will make many to be accounted righteous. So why are you righteous before God? Why are you accepted by God? Not because of your works, 
but because of this right here. Because Jesus Christ has suffered, he bore the scandal of your sin in your place. And through faith in him, the work that he did to atone for sin, to live in righteousness, is credited to you. Not because you deserve it, but because he did it. And see there too in verse 12, the subsequent glory that Jesus, who has rescued many, will share the spoils of his victory with all those who he makes strong in his righteousness. That's the subsequent glory that awaits those of us who have faith in him. Now back to 1 Peter chapter 1. We find another thing here regarding what the prophets of old discovered concerning our salvation. They said that the salvation would pass from suffering to glory, that suffering would come before glory, and it was true for Jesus, and therefore it's true for those of us who are in Christ. The glory of Christ's resurrection his ascension into heaven, his coronation as King of kings and Lord of lords, all of that came only after his humiliation and his crucifixion and his apparent defeat. In this story where we live in a broken world full of sin and shame, salvation that is brought to us comes only after suffering. That's the way God chose to do it. And in his wisdom, it's good and it's right. So we see Christ Jesus, the beloved Son of God, have to press through suffering. And now, as a result of his faithfulness, he is seated at the right hand of glory beside God the Father with all power and dominion and authority. It was interesting to learn a little bit about Karchner Caverns. These two young men who discovered these caves, uh, what they really found was uh, kind of a depression in the earth that they jumped down into and they found kind of like a, a, an open space that they crawled through. And eventually what they came to was a dark underground cramped room about the size of a space underneath maybe a trampoline in somebody's backyard. And there in that little cavern was a hole about the size of a grapefruit. And they worked in shifts for 10 hours at a time with a hammer and chisel in the dark, crouched down, pounding away at this little hole to see if they could widen it big enough for them to crawl through. And they finally managed after many days to get this hole big enough that they could squeeze through with scrapes and gashes on their skin. And what they found on the inside was a beautiful treasure unlike anything that they had ever seen before, an undiscovered world of wonder, glory beyond what they could have imagined as they chiseled away at that hole with pain and exhaustion in the dark. On the other side was a wonderful reward. And it made them forget about their exhaustion and the scrapes and the bruises as they began to wander through that mysterious cave. What a great illustration for our own lives, isn't it? Peter's letter talks a lot about suffering 
It talks a lot about trials. It talks a lot about persecution and hardship. This is one of his major themes. And it's true that our salvation is a gift that comes to us by grace through faith. We cannot earn it. We dare not even try. But to follow in the footsteps of this Savior who has loved us so deeply is to be pressed and squeezed and scraped and bruised just like our Savior himself was. As we die to ourselves and we endure suffering so that we might pass through those hardships that life brings us into the subsequent glories that await us in the face of Jesus. Our part is not to earn the glories that are on the other side of the suffering, just as those explorers didn't create the cave. But we must press through the suffering of this life that comes our way with endurance in order that we might be prepared, well prepared, for the weight of glory that awaits us on the other side. If Christ, the Son of God, was made to suffer before receiving glory, then we his people must also be prepared to suffer before we share in that glory. And I think as your pastor, if I could just have you hear one thing this morning before you go home, it would simply be this. Keep going. Keep trusting in God's love for you. Keep clinging to that. Keep clinging to the righteousness that you have been given as a gift by Christ. That's not your own righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's the blessing that is offered to you by faith through the work of Jesus. Keep your hope in that finished work alive. Do not despair. Keep fighting. Keep enduring the scrapes and the bruises and the darkness of the unknown that's ahead of you, don't quit. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him, who are faithful to the end. You do not have a clue what kind of treasure awaits you. And all that's required of you is to keep going. Don't give up. Don't grow weary. Your reward as Peter already told us back in verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And even the prophets themselves, I think, give us an example to press on. Because the other really surprising thing that they discovered as they searched and inquired the prophecies of old, as they wondered about this salvation they learned that it would come by grace through faith, yes, but verse 12 also tells us that they learned that the understanding of this salvation by grace through faith, it was actually not theirs. They would not receive it in their lifetime. They would receive it by faith in the work of Jesus as a future reality, but they would not live to see the Messiah who would love them in this way and provide for their salvation in this way. And so they were not serving themselves because they died before the grace of Jesus was fully revealed through his life and death and resurrection. They sought to understand these things and to make them clear and to record them for our benefit. And they came to know full well 
that they themselves would not see it come to fruition. As Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 17, Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Maybe like a man who labors his whole life in order to store up a treasure that he might offer it to his children as a benefit, and he dies without ever having an opportunity to use it. The prophets foretold salvation by grace, but they never were able to receive it as their own. They didn't live in that dispensation. Yet still they trusted, even without seeing, so that we might look at their lives and see their perseverance and be inspired to press on and hold fast to our hope. And we truly are more blessed than those prophets of old because what they saw only as a fog or a mist or a future hope, only as a hint, it's this salvation that comes to us by grace through faith. This truth of God's overwhelming, relentless love for those who are in Christ Jesus, that truth is not hidden to you. It's not hidden from me. We see it clearly. As verse 12 says, it's now been announced to to us through those who preached the good news by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Friends, we've received this good news about God's grace. It's been revealed by the Holy Spirit who came from heaven bearing this wonderful news. We know it. We understand it. That God's love is for those who, not, who do not keep his law perfectly, but who look to his son. The good news that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus has done in making us righteous through his sacrifice. Now think about what Peter says here at the end of verse 12. This truth, this good news about God's grace that comes to us through faith, this is the kind of stuff that angels long to look into. Can you imagine? After we left Karchner Cavern, we were driving back uh, to Maricopa. And you know, if you've made that drive from Tucson up here, at different points there's mountains along the way. And uh, Karchner Cavern is kind of nestled in a low hill. So I found myself thinking, I wonder if there's other caves around here. Like maybe I could get a hammer and a chisel and, and a flashlight and I could go find a cavern. I could hunt for something wonderful and undiscovered. And in secret, I could delve down in the depths of that place and find deep, hidden, unseen things. That would be cool. Now think about this. I long to see a cave. What if, what if you could see an angel? I think that would be cooler than a cave. Caves are dark and dank and weird and kind of creepy. Angels are glorious, wonderful, full of light and majesty and beauty. How much greater are angels than maybe anything else that we've ever perceived in all of creation? Angels that are made of pure spirit, they stand in the presence of God. 
like Moses' face radiated when he went into the presence of God. These are spiritual beings that are in the presence of God. How much more do they radiate the glory and majesty of God himself? They are called flames of fire. They are described in Revelation as beings that can stand with a foot on the shore and a foot in the sea. Colossal and majestic, towering over the land. What a wonder it would be to see an angel. Far more wonderful than a cave. But think about this. What do angels long to see? Those beings who are so much more glorious than you or I, what do they long to look at? What could be more glorious than an angel? that it would cause them to burn with desire to behold. Well, you know what? It's something that already belongs to us. Can you believe that? That's what Peter is telling us. If you could ask an angel, what does your heart burn with passion to look at? He would say that he desires nothing so much as to gaze upon the glory of Jesus Christ in the good news of the gospel. What does it say about our hearts That what angels would long to look into, we can read every day in our Bible and be like, oh, that's cool. What does it say about what we understand and think and believe about the gospel? That's something that angels long to perceive. We take as granted. We've been given what angels long to look upon. The love of God poured out upon unworthy sinners. Grace given freely apart from works. Salvation offered to us by the King of kings who willingly, gladly laid down his life for us. Joy that sustains us in every trial. Victory over sin. Life after death and riches forevermore in the presence of God. The forgiveness of our sins through the righteousness of Christ applied to us. The Spirit of God making His home in our hearts. The flesh of man united with the Spirit of God for all eternity. Enduring hope and everlasting life. Forget the discovery of a cave with its dark, wet weirdness. Give me only the light of the gospel and its boundless joy. To live and look upon the loving face of Jesus Christ. That alone can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. Any suffering, any suffering at all, is a price that I would gladly pay to join the angels in their wonder at the grace and love of God that he has given to sinners like you and me through the work of his beloved son, Jesus. As 2 John 3 says, grace Mercy and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love.